Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our special series on my grandfather's journey from a college student to being one of the 16 million brave Americans who fought in World War II. I wanted to go back to a time where everyone loved their country, people helped their neighbors, and people's actions matched their words. There are hundreds of millions of stories just like this one, stories of bravery, sacrifice, heroism, luck, tragedy, and everything in between. I'm sharing this story not because I think it's more badass than your grandfather's story, but because every one of these stories should be shared, and I happen to have every order, transfer, flight log, interview, medical record from my grandfather's military service. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the series. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at Tim Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Robert A. Warren Sr. of Mattapoisett died February 8, 1990 in Juniper, Florida. He was 98 years old. He built and flew gliders off of Prospect Hill in 1909, and from then on, his lifelong interest was aviation. After serving as an ensign in the U.S. Navy during World War I, he became an economist for the Boston Federal Reserve. Bob was one of the first airmail pilots in the country. You see, after the invention of powered flight in 1911, the Postal Department saw the potential for airmail to really take off. The National Post Office commissioned an experiment, and soon, with the skilled piloting of amateur pilot named Earl Ovington, he delivered a sack of letters a mere six miles, flying between one airfield in Long Island to another nearby. The airmail languished for six years after the first initial success. After the end of the war, the post office made use of the many returning aviators, hiring them as aerial postmen. So now in 1926, private companies could take on the burden of flying without being formally sworn in as postal employees, and they did. In just under a year, the post office had fully divested itself from any first-hand operation of airmail. Building small regional airfields for the purpose of receiving and sending airmail had seemed absurd only a few years before, but now municipalities were scrambling to build the infrastructure they thought was essential to stick with the times. By 1927, less than a decade from the original airmail flight, the country had a commercial airline system. A year earlier, in 1926, Robert Warren Sr. became president of the American Airports of New England and the New England Air Terminals. Later, he and his father, George Frederick Warren, formed the Waltham Aeronautical Society. Bob was also a charter member of the Early Birds of Aviation. Robert Warren Sr. was my great-grandfather. Bob Sr. was in the aviation game from the beginning, so it was no surprise that his son, Bob Jr., who was born on February 3, 1921, would grow up to be a pilot as well. 
Although the family history would suggest Bob Jr. would obviously follow in his father's aviation footsteps, we have to remember how rare pilots were back then. When Bob Jr. got his private pilot's license in 1940 at the age of 19, there were only about 30,000 pilots in the entire country. Prior to the thought of World War, Bob Jr., who will just be called Bob for the remainder of the series, had his private pilot's license and his own single-engine plane. The following year, in 1941, Bob was a junior at Wesleyan College in Middletown, Connecticut, and on December 8th, gathered in a fraternity house, Bob and his friends listened to the following. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and, at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. After listening to President Roosevelt's speech in the frat house, Bob, like most men, immediately signed up to fight once we declared war in Japan. And if you were in school, you had to finish out the semester you were currently enrolled in before you were called up to active duty. So Bob joined the Air Force, which at the time was a division of the Army. The Air Force did not become its own branch of the military until September 18, 1947, with the implementation of the National Security Act. Bob enlisted as a private, and after basic training, he applied for aviation cadet training, where he was accepted in December of 1942. Bob headed to the Army Air Corps Training Center of Maxwell Field, Alabama, there, Bob and other aviation cadets were enrolled in Air Force Pilot School, which was pre-flight, which instructed them in the mechanics and physics of flight. 
and required the cadets to pass courses in mathematics and hard sciences. Then the cadets were taught to apply their knowledge practically by teaching them aeronautics, deflection shooting, and thinking in three dimensions. And on January 8th of 1943, after completing his pre-flight training, Bob went to primary flight school in Greenville, South Carolina, and then on a basic flight school in Blytheville, Arkansas in April of 1943. Here, Bob had to make a choice between single or twin-engine planes, and in 1943, the hot new plane was the P-38 Lightning, and Bob and other pilots were hearing stories like this one. The pilot in the new American fighter, the P-38 Lightning, peeled down from the skies over Iceland on August 14, 1942. True to its name, the P-38 was akin to a force of nature, fast, unforeseen, and immensely powerful. The aircraft's target was a German FW-200 Condor Patrol bomber. Its crew had never encountered anything quite like it before. With its distinctive design, the P-38 was sleek, but its twin tails gave the Lightning a new radical look. The pilot, pumping 409 rounds per minute from its nose-mounted machine guns, dispatched the Condor in seconds, marking the first successful American engagement of a German aircraft in World War II. The P-38 had two engines, so Bob chose twin-engine school. Well, twin engines turned out to be multiple engines, so Bob had to say goodbye to his dreams of flying the P-38 Lightning and say hello to the heavy bombers, the Winnebagos of the sky. Bob was not pleased, but graduated basic flight school, and on February 8, 1943, he was officially called up to active duty from the Air Corps Reserve, and on February 15, 1943, Bob was officially discharged as an aviation cadet and accepted a commission as a second lieutenant and got his pilot wings. The celebration was short-lived because instead of receiving an overseas assignment, Bob was ordered to stay on as a twin-engine instructor. Another twist Bob was not pleased with. So he applied for a transfer to active duty. He wanted to fight and not teach. However, Bob's transfer was not well received by his superiors. Being asked to stay on as an instructor was looked at by the brass as a good job, an honor to be recognized as one of the best students and to be asked to teach in the safe non-combat environment. Bob stayed and was a twin-engine flight instructor until his transfer request was finally approved on May 19, 1943, where he transferred to gunnery school in Tidale Airfield in Florida. After a month of gunnery school, Bob was assigned to the 29th Flying Training Wing of the 39th Fighter Group at the Lockheed Hudson Bomber Training School in Seymour Airfield in North Carolina. The Lockheed Hudson was an American-built light bomber and coastal reconnaissance aircraft built initially for the Royal Air Force shortly before the outbreak of World War II. This begun Bob's training flying bombers. Upon graduation from Lockheed Bomber Training School, it was back to Florida where Bob would spend the next several months flying various aircraft. In July and August of 1943, he was flying at AT-18, September, he was logging co-pilot and first pilot hours in B-24 bombers. October, he logged 80 hours of flight time in an RB-34, an AT-6, and an AT-18. November was spent in the same aircraft, but logged 106 hours. In December of 1943, Bob started flying the AT-18, the B-24, and the B-17 bombers. The new year brought a new focus to B-17 bombers exclusively, and in January of 1944, Bob completed 60 hours as a co-pilot and 11 hours as first pilot. 
By February, 39 of his 46 hours flown was as a first pilot, as well as in March, where 58 out of his 82 hours were first pilot hours. As Bob was recalling his path through training, he took a moment at this point to share a story. After listening to hours of interviews with Bob, he doesn't share anecdotes often, so when he does, there's usually a reason why. In putting the pieces together, I think it was because he was scared. He definitely had a different definition of scared before and after seeing actual combat, but one day a new B-24 showed up at the base and a captain wanted Bob to be his co-pilot. Bob was one of the few people on base to have any time behind the wheel of the B-24. The B-24 was very different from its predecessor, the B-17, and one of the biggest differences was the landing gear. The new B-24 had a tricycle landing gear, meaning there was one wheel up front under the nose and a wheel under each of the wings. This was the exact opposite of the B-17 that the captain had previously flown. The B-17 had the wheel under each wings, but the third wheel was under the tail at the rear of the plane. From a takeoff and landing perspective, how you fly these planes is very different. So the captain asked Bob to be his co-pilot, and at this point, Bob has figured out something about the captain's motives that bothered him. You see, when you're a pilot in the Air Corps, you need to qualify for your additional pilot pay by flying so many hours as first pilot. Now, Bob had known this captain. He'd been around the base for at least a year, and Bob had never seen him fly anything. And Bob had spent more than 10 months at this base. From that, Bob deduced that he was being used to get the extra pilot pay. The captain could have flown any one of the numerous aircrafts on the base, but he wanted to take the shiny new one for a ride, but he needed Bob to make that happen. So my intuition tells me Bob viewed this flight as an unnecessary risk because there is no need to have your first flight in a brand new plane you've never flown before be as the first pilot, where you have the majority of responsibilities in takeoff and landing the plane completely foreign to anything you've previously flown. These planes require both pilots to fly them because there is simply too much plane, too many controls for one pilot to do all the work. Bob recalls sitting on the tarmac and the captain had the flight manual opened up on his lap and he's reading the instructions on how to fly this plane. Oh, to be a fly on the instrument panel in that plane to see Bob's facial expressions and mannerisms as he watches his superior officer reading the instructions prior to takeoff. Bob described the flight as hairy, which in Warren speak means he was scared. They made it up and back down in one piece and the captain got his flight pay and Bob got his wish as well. He got his orders to report to B-24 Combat School at Gowan Airfield Base in Boise, Idaho. B-24 Combat School is the final training before overseas assignment with the Bomber Squadron. In late April of 1944, Bob and six other officers arrived at B-24 Combat School at Goward Airfield and started logging flight times in the new B-24D Liberator Bombers. Bob was assigned a co-pilot, navigator, bombardier, and eight gunners. They spent the next three weeks together. And on March 18th, Bob got his B-24 instrumental pilot certificate and then his night flight certificate. And upon completion of B-24 combat training school, guess what? Bob was asked to stay and teach the next class. Overseas duty would have to wait. and Bob reluctantly agreed, but kept asking for a transfer to overseas combat flying. Bob made mention several times that he felt like teaching was holding him back from doing his duty which he thought was combat flying. 
Bob taught 1B24 class, and then on July 10th, 1944, he got the orders he had been waiting for since December 7th of 1942. Per the Sergeant of Grenier Field, Manchester, New Hampshire, Station 16 of the Naval Atlantic Wing, Air Transport Command, Operations Orders Number 120, 10th of July, 1944. The following name crew by air in the aircraft and indicated below at the proper time from Grenier Field, Manchester, New Hampshire, via the North Atlantic route to Tanzania, reporting upon arrival. They read to the responsible representative 15th Air Force, Tanzania, for further assignment and duty with the 15th Air Force. Shipment of a B-24J, crew number Foxtrot Kilo Alpha Yankee 131, Plane number 42, serial number 50899. Second Lieutenant Robert Warren, pilot. Second Lieutenant Lauren Swyshen, co-pilot. Second Lieutenant Glenn Enbrock, navigator. Flight Officer Orrin Fulton, bombardier. Sergeant Calvin Steinberg, engineering officer. Sergeant Manley Fisher, radio officer. Sergeant Donald Resnick, armament officer. Corporal Lester Wilson, gunner. Corporal Robert Conan, gunner and Corporate Glenn Myers, Gunner. This is a permanent change of station. Except as may be necessary in the transaction of official business, individuals are prohibited from discussing their overseas destination, even by shipment number. They will not file safe arrival telegrams with commercial agencies while en route and at domestic or overseas destinations. By order of Colonel Moore, J.E. Sandow, Lieutenant Colonel, Atlantic Campaign, Aircraft Operations Officers. So it's game time. The orders are in. The crew is set. Bob and his crew fly to Topeka, Kansas and pick up a brand new, right off the assembly line, B-24 Liberator. Then they fly from Kansas to Grenier Airfield in Manchester, New Hampshire. After refueling, they continue up north to Presque Isle, Maine, which is a small town on the northeast corner of Maine, 40 miles from the Canadian border. They resupply at Presque Isle and they leave there at dusk to take an overnight 4,000-mile flight to the Ascension Island. And if you're looking for the Ascension Island on a map, good luck. It's roughly 8 miles wide by about 6 miles tall. It's about the size of Nantucket. And it's located halfway between the east coast of Brazil and the west coast of Angola in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. And Angola is on the east coast of Africa for my fellow public school graduates. After spending the night on the island, they refuel and head to Marrakesh, a city in western Morocco. For those keeping score at home, looking at the continent of Africa, we're in the top left corner. The crew spends an eventful hot summer's day in a country with a very different culture and sanitation situation. Bob remembers the smell vividly 50 years later. Leaving Morocco, the crew heads to Tunis, the capital city of Tanzania. Now we're in the northernmost point of Africa, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. From there, you can look across the Mediterranean to the east. From Tunis, it's a quick ride to Toretta Airfield, home of the 15th Air Force 461st Bomber Squad. This is their final stop, home base. Toretta is located just west of Palermo, the capital city of Sicily. So you find the boot on the map, find the little island that it looks like it's kicking. That's Sicily, top left corner of the island is where 23-year-old Robert Warren Jr. and his crew were assigned to the 765th Bomber Squadron. Next up, we will get into the B-24 Liberator and her crew, who will fly her into battle. I'd like to thank everyone very much for listening to part one of this special series. B-24 
is a more complicated plane to fly than the B-17. So, we got checked out in the B-17, and I started to fly those, Tyndall. Then one day, a B-24 showed up pretty hairy experience, I think. I was checked out in a B-24. I'd been an instructor in a B-24. I hadn't flown one for probably three or four months. And the captain called me up and asked me to go down the flight line. He wanted to fly a B-24. And a lot of these fellows, they get their flying pay. They fly six hours a month and they get flying pay. So I knew that this fellow had been around for at least a year and I'd never seen him flying anything. But he was going to fly the airplane. So we had the instruction book out. <laughs> and uh, I was quite unhappy. Anyway, we made it all right. The orders came through, so I got shipped out to the West Coast and went to B-24. 